This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words from Gramsci, roughly paraphrased by Zizek, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. This podcast is sponsored by The Nation magazine and is widely available on podcasting platforms. Mathematician Chandler Davis died two years ago, and he was the subject of a fascinating obituary in The Nation, which I will link to in the show notes. But his significance extended far beyond the world of mathematics. He was truly a polymathic figure. Among other things, he was a, a science fiction writer of some note but also a political activist. And in the early 1950s, during the second Red Scare, his activism made him the center of hugely important trial. Unlike other victims of McCarthyism who pled the fifth so that they could avoid giving up names of their past political associations, Chandler Davis tried a novel uh, legal strategy of pleading the First Amendment. He said that under the First Amendment, neither the committee nor his university had the right to make inquiries into his political activism. Now, this legal gambit was not successful. Chandler Davis was not only blacklisted, but he actually served time in federal prison. But even in its defeat, the argument actually came arguably significantly close to convincing judges. And it certainly resonated with the free speech movement that predated the second Red Scare and continues to reverberate now of like, what does the First Amendment actually mean? The legal strategy that his lawyers carried out was influenced by the philosophy of a very important legal theorist, Alexander Mickeljohn, who put free speech as the cornerstone of American democracy. So Davis's life, his struggles with McCarthyism continues to resonate now, especially when a very right-wing court is using free speech for purposes completely different than anything Chandler Davis uh, might have imagined. And that too is part of the story about how the contested uses of free speech. Now, Chandler Davis, because of his time in prison and blacklisting, could no longer find employment in the United States. But he ended up, after some difficulty, finding a job at the University of Toronto. And uh, this is where my uh, guest, the journalist Doug Bell, came in, because he got to know Chandler Davis and his wife, the very eminent historian, Natalie Zeman Davis, who herself died last year, Doug got, got to know them. So, and he, I want to bring in Doug to talk about Chandler Davis's as a man and also the free speech struggle that he led and also talk about a new biography of Chandler Davis that has just come out that has revived all these issues. So Doug, welcome to the program. Well, as always, Gene, a great pleasure to be here. And just to say that my background with Chandler Davis was really, as so many things in my my life, uh, through the good offices of my wife, Siobhan Roberts, 
who is a historian of mathematics and wrote a, a biography in 2006 of a guy called Donald Coxeter, who was at the University of Toronto throughout the course of his career, an important geometer. But as regards Chandler Davis, crucial to the story. When Davis was in the, the worst of his circumstances, which is say just after he'd been imprisoned for six months in Danbury at a federal prison, subsequently, and this is, this is an important point, that he was blacklisted subsequent to, the, to, 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 to his imprisonment. And the blacklisting incorporated both his dismissal from the University of Michigan under, you know, really dicey circumstances, as was the situation with, with the House on American Activities Committee. But he, was all, he also applied to 150 math, mathematics departments across the United States. All of it fell on deaf ears. And he happened to run into Donald Coxer, you know, the whirlywigs, the, the circuitous nature of reality. He happened to run into Donald Coxer at a math conference, told him something of the story. Coxeter was predisposed, his background was as a Quaker, and he was predisposed to think that a guy like Chandler Davis was getting rooked anyway. So he immediately worked like a demon to get him into the Department of Mathematics at the University of Toronto, a, a department you know more, more eminent than 90% of the places he was being blacklisted by. The... The, 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 you know, no, no, the, before you go to the, yeah. the biography, so, so I should mention Roberts is the, uh, the author of the obituary that I'll be linking to and, uh, and both the biography of Coxeter and the obituary really flesh out the sort of intersection of mathematics and politics that we're, we're going to be discussing. But just, do you want to just say a little bit about what Hitler Davis, who I believe his friends always call Chan, what he was just like as a person? Oh, well, I mean, just... <laughs> Charming is that mm-hmm. I mean, there's just I know he's, he was much more than that, but he mm-hmm. had this ease and grace that was just so obvious. And both he and and his wife Natalie Zeman Davis, best known for her book, which made it made into the film The Return of Martin Gare, and so she was really an eminent historian. And and they came over here during the course of the research for the book, and subsequently, you know, they were over here for dinner a couple of times. And and I mean, just very graceful graceful, highly intelligent, supremely erudite, um, and, you know, principled that, I mean, now, did I gather all of that from having dinner with the guy? Probably not. But, you know, the thing is, is that in reading about his background, particularly the fact that he, he was making all of these cases for the importance of the first amendment, having been raised by a father who himself was subject to 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 the red scare and who in his instance pleaded the fifth you know against self incrimination because he'd been advised to do so and so as a matter of principle having grown up in that kind of circumstances those kinds of circumstances chandler chan davis chandler davis i i shouldn't call him chan cuz i didn't know him well enough <laughs> but chandler davis saw through that process to the real nut of the principle which was that the whole uh, HUEC enterprise was a repudiation of the very core, the very central strut of the American constitutional experiment, which is free speech. 
Yes, and I should mention that Chandler Davis, his his family, in addition to his father, he came from a very political family that had been involved with much activism for many generations, going back to the American Revolution, including abolitionism. So, but he, the, he grew up. He grew up with there. There were relatives on both sides of the Revolutionary War. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Incredible. Yeah. So, so then, as you said, and I think that's actually significant to the story because he did actually try to see McCarthyism in the broader sweep of American history and the sort of American politics to see it as like not just this one-time eruption of a, demog- a demagogue, but actually something that goes to the root of what, what the United States actually means and what the, a liberal democracy actually means. Like, what is the place of free speech within a, a liberal democracy? And uh, this would be a good pl- uh, point to bring in the philosopher Alexander uh, Mikuljan, who really animate, g- gave this sort of philosophical, intellectual, historical grounding for Chandler Davis's bid to defeat McCarthyism through the First Amendment. Yeah, no, it's 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 really an intriguing uh, story, and, and it's all, by the way, available in in Steve Batterson's book, The Prosecution of Professor Chandler Davis, recently published by a Monthly Review Press, it was where I gathered a good portion of the the Micklejohn's involvement. So Micklejohn had written this book around the first Red Scare, the World War circumstances, where uh, I think the the major case involved activists working to dissuade or, or convince people convince people who'd already been drafted to sign documents or, or to, to you know d- devise documents that suggested that, that, that the draft was just wrong that it was it was it was wrongheaded in its in its in its in its conception uh, and, and so that that was that was what to some degree that was what Michael what Chandler Davis's father had been involved in but when he came to make this case to to the circuit court, and then eventually through a sort of circuitous set of circumstances to the Supreme Court, it wasn't actually his case; it was another case, but very similar. the The sort of central strut of this First Amendment defense was rooted in the uh, Mickle John's kind of philosophical observations of the importance of free speech to American life. Now. The key thing here is that that amendment is not, as it's sometimes portrayed, one right among many, as established in the in the Constitution. I mean, there's the, you know the fifth. The people plead the fifth because that's you have a right to to not accuse yourself, essentially, self incrimination. And then there's you know property rights and all, all sorts of stuff is enunciated in all of the in, in in the in the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. But what Micklejohn's insight was, was that the entire enterprise of American, of, of America, the con- great constitutional experiment of America, was that it was self-governing. And to be, in order to be self-governing, all expression must be allowed, which is to say, everything must be debated. Everything must be discussed. And the, the 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 specific repudiation and again and again you know it's inter- it's interesting about about Chandler Davis I mean here's a guy he's 27 years old he's an you know he's a, basically a, a, a not even tenured right as a, as an instructor associate professor I can't remember which at, at 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 Michigan 27 years old so he has this kind of insight as he's being you know confronted by 
the FBI investigations, this uh, the HUAC, all of it, right? Which we we've discussed before in this podcast, and you know, extraordinary, right? The the, the extent to which the the, the 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 great maw of the American deep state, for lack of a better term, descended on Chandler Davis. And so in the course of that, he came by way, actually, of seeking counsel from, from some lawyers, you know, civil rights lawyers. Somebody brought Michael John to, to his attention. He took this all in. And then, of course, it, it absolutely jibed with his natural instinct to believe that this was the case, that, 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 that as you suggested, that McCarthyism was about a lot more than just one, you know, drunken demagogue, you know, banging the drum up in Minnesota, right? I mean, this or from Minnesota. The 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 the, the, the real the key thing. Here, uh, actually, just a correction for sorry. Uh, all the Time of Monsters fans who are in the <laughs> Great Lakes area. Uh, the uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy was well, from Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin. Uh, oh God. Minnesota. Minnesota is the, the fine home of decent law-abiding Scandinavians, unlike the rubes <laughs> and rednecks of Wisconsin. The, the, the uh, bruising but, 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 rednecks but, but, of Wisconsin. But to the point, the thing is that the is that, that idea that the First Amendment is not just one among many, but first, right? Uh, uh, really first and and foundational to the entire process. In other words, all of the other rights, the 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 the, the ascribed rights, rely on the First Amendment in order to to move forward. And this, of course, is not just a crucial insight for understanding the the, the life and times uh, of Chandler Davis. But also, I, I go so far as to say that it 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 hints at what is at stake and what is to come, as or or what's at stake in what has generally been referred to as the most consequential election. I mean, it seems like they say every goddamn presidential election is the most consequential election, but the, the, this coming one, Trump v. Biden, this will be the and and the interesting thing is this will be wrapped up in a bunch of other issues, but. Really, if you look through those issues to see what the fundamental question is, it's all going to come back to what really counts as free speech. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's a that's a very important point, and I want to really expand on it on a number of fronts. Let, but let's take it a few steps at a time because free speech, you know, continues to be remain important, and in some ways, there's been a sort of co-option of the right. Of Michael John's ideas, but used in very different ends. That is to say that the very right-wing justices who dominate the Supreme Court are using the, the First Amendment more and more, and they're but they're using it to entrench various forms of reactionary power. One is corporate power to say, you know, as in the Citizens United decision, the basic premise of which is, you know, money is speech. And you, you can't regulate dark money in elections because he who has the money has the right to make their speech known. The, but the other interesting innovation of the First Amendment by the, the right has been to use the First Amendment to defend religious bigotry. That is to say that the maker of a wedding cake is an expressive artist like Michelangelo. And therefore, if they don't want to serve gay or lesbian 
couples who are getting married, that's an infringement of their free speech. And and there's been many other such cases where there's a kind of grounding of free speech to basically pick sides, to choose the free speech right of the religious cake maker, the, the homophobic cake maker, over the, you know, what one could argue is the free speech right of the gay couple to have a cake that has uh, their names on it. So, so, so there's a kind of been a weaponization of free speech by the conservative majority, making free speech actually a, a real cornerstone right in the Mickeljohn fashion, but in I think towards very opposite ends. And I, I know before we talked, um, uh, uh, before the podcast, we had some conversation about this, but I mean, uh, it's worth underscoring that Mickeljohn's um, whole uh, theory of speech is the opposite of the idea that money is speech, right? Like, well, what no, does no, he yeah, see that, speech that, for? Yeah, and 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 and, and crucially so. Uh, it, it's the, the, the Citizens United case is, is intriguing in the sense that, for instance, Stephen Breyer, who went off the court recently, wrote a both a a a dissent as with regards to citizens, and also wrote in a, in a subsequent case, which I can't remember the name of, a a, a kind of an espousal of the, the Mickeljohn's idea of what free speech constitutes. And what's intriguing in, in, the, in the subsequent decision, Breyer's, which, which I've, I've read, but I'm summoning from memory, is that he suggests that the influx of money into the political process as a result of citizens diminishes the overall if you will, to, 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 to free speech or the power of free speech among all of the citizenry. And that's, uh, you know, that's an obvious truth at one level, because I mean, if you, you've got a bazillion dollars and you can go and buy a bunch of ads and so forth, that gives you a big megaphone that, that, that individuals don't have, which, which Breyer suggested explicitly undermined, undercut the, the, the intention of the, 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 that amend, the First Amendment, right? The, the 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 government will in no way abridge free speech, but the but the but the sort of intriguing twist to it, I think, is and I, I I'm probably repeating something I said earlier that the that the the United States is, if nothing else, a grand experiment in self government, and if it is in fact that, then the citizenry as a whole must engage in the most, the, the, the freest and the most fulsome debate that is conceivable, right? And the suppression specifically, now this, this doesn't, it, it pertains to Breyer, but on the margin, but in the, in the, in the case of the, in the McCarthy era, the suppression of an entire suite of ideas that were, you know, broadly under the rubric of the, you know, the, the, the Red Scare, the, the communist bogeyman, the, the suppression of those ideas is a direct repudiation of the, of the, of the idea of self-government. And that, I think, is at the root of, of, of Breyer. And I have to say that the other side of this argument that's made by the right, I, I, I spent the weekend somewhat in preparation for this, somewhat as a matter of masochism reviewing various podcasts and speechifying and so forth of Richard Posner, the, the very famous judge of the Seventh Circuit, famously erudite, famously prolific, never ended up on the Supreme Court, but, you know, from the rights point of view, a kind of hero. 
the major innovation in there of what's known as law and economics, uh, right. which is the idea that uh, basically judges, their job is to enforce kind of radical right-wing libertarian economic theory that is somehow implicit in the laws, although actually never was the intent of these laws. No, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and you could argue that much of that sort of theorizing about about the nature of the the judge's job within the judiciary and the nature of law there's a straight line from that to citizens now what was interesting watching posner was so there was there was it was some debate on or debate between him and a guy called jeffrey stone at the university of chicago both in the they were both in the this is how prolific the guy was he was he sat on the bench and he was a prof the whole time essentially at the university of chicago so in addition to, you know, writing 50 books and all the rest of it. But what really intrigued me was the, the kind of ease with which Posner dismissed concerns about communism as a threat to the United States. He said, oh, well, everybody knew this was in the course of one of these discussions. Everybody knew that, 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 that communists across the United States were taking their distractions directly from Moscow. I mean, that's not an exact quote, but it's pretty close to that. And his, then people kind of gave him leeway because he was a kind of an elder and, and well thought of, although Stone kind of pushed back a little bit. And part, part of the whole story is, is that Posner's parents were communists, so he was well adapted, well suited to discuss this. But that's just hooey. I mean, as a justification for the extent to which speech was suppressed, that somehow every everyone who who held these ideas, including Chandler Davis and others, I mean, you know, part of what got got me interested in this was our discussion about Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer ratting out his 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 associates. All of those people were just they were they were intrigued by the idea. They weren't on a direct line to the Kremlin, and 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 so the 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 the, the, the sort of the extent to which this kind of mindset has suffused and traveled through to the current situation, I found quite chilling because this idea that, you know, Trump keeps going on about the, the, the deep state and all the rest. Of it. Well, Trump grew up with this kind, the kind of crude Philistine anti-communism expressed. And I got to say it by Posner he grew up with that, his mother's milk. I mean, he was he was sitting at at, at Roy Cohn's knee, basically. Yeah, no, Roy Cohn. I mean, yeah, to tie everything together, was Trump's major kind of mentor in his early days, and was obviously, as the listeners will remember, you know, one of the most fetid, creepy, demonic <laughs> avatars of anti-communism, sleazy slimeball of the worst sort, given immortality in the uh, the famous play Angels in America. Now, uh, but, but the, uh, I mean, to, you know, like, as we're updating all this, like, Trump's anti-immigrant minion, Stephen Miller, just said, I believe yesterday, that the, uh, you know, in the new Trump administration, one of the things that they will do is all the students who are protesting against the war in Gaza, you know, if they were like foreign students in America on a visa, well, guess what? They're going to be deported. Right. And I mean, it seems like like that is in a, in essence 
the McCarthyist case, right? That that American citizenship is provisional. You have to pledge allegiance to a certain reactionary vision of what the nation is. And now that also includes pledging allegiance to Israel and what the Israeli state is doing in Gaza. And that if you violate that, your citizenship or your permanent residency status can be taken away. And and this is part and parcel of a much larger attack on free speech on the right that, you know, one sees in like attacks on librarians and public schools, you know, that have gay and lesbian books. So, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I think it's not too much to say that there is a kind of new McCarthyism that's brewing and one sees the logic of it being spelled out very clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And just to just to just to put that in 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 a, in, a, in a sort of constitutional context, I mean, it's not as if if you confronted Stephen Miller and said, "This is a repudiation of the American Constitution. What about free speech?" He would, I, putting myself in the mind of Stephen Miller, is a bit of a chore, but he would likely suggest that, as Oliver Wendell Holmes suggested in his de- decisions around the first Red Scare. That and this is a this is a crucial passage, a crucial phrase. If there is a clear and present danger to the United States, that is an a, an immediately triggers uh, the, the allowance for a suppression of speech, broadly free speech. The, and the, that phrase, clear and present danger, is the crucial is the crucial phrasing. And. Certainly, as regards the second Red Scare and the current situation, there is no clear and present danger. I mean, from from people, you know, from kids going out and making doing exactly what they did in the 60s. It's the same mindset, right? Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? I mean, precisely the same set of circumstances hold. These are reasonable. Look, I'm, I'm not suggesting that there aren't there aren't, you know, people with malign intent that are mixed in with the with 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 with, with the crowd of activists, you know, supporting the Palestinians. I mean, that's perfectly plausible. But there's already every goddamn law in the book to put to to, to suppress them every anyway. The idea that you need to suppress free speech under the guise of this quote unquote clear and present danger that is the real problem, and well, that's okay. the, that's the thing that Trump has no issue with. Yeah, no, he will I, always suggests that somehow America is under threat by some, you know, unseen ghostly horror, right? That needs to be suppressed. And that's the that, and this is and this is the through line from the early part of the 20th century right to now. Well, well, no, I, I, th- I think that's right. And I mean, you mentioned Oliver Wendell Holmes, who I think gives the kind of liberal centrist articulation of this point of view. I, I would also want to mention Wilmore Kendall to actually get at more closely what the philosophy here is. Now, Kendall was a professor at Yale, a mentor to William F. Buckley Jr., who co-wrote a defense of McCarthyism that some people have argued was actually, you know, de facto written by Kendall, where he provided all the ideas and ammunition that uh, Buckley and his brother-in-law, Albert Bozell, put into the book McCarthy uh, and uh, his enemies. And Kendall was the major theoretician of McCarthyism. And his whole point of view 
was the exact opposite of Alexander Mickeljohn. But to Kendall, the American democracy was not defined by free speech. He said that uh, we have always been a people that have had the truth. We we have an right. orthodoxy and membership of the community involves subscription to that orthodoxy and that the that if you do not subscribe to that orthodoxy as the communists do not you know you, you deserve whatever you get and then Kendall's you know famous expression of this was the you know the true american tradition is not just the you know the town hall where uh, everyone holds forth uh the true american tradition is running somebody out of town uh, <laughs> on a rail you know he's actually describing you know like what he could say really existing america has been the America of tarring and feathering, the America of lynching, and then Kendall's basically saying, "Well, that's who we are, right?" Like, like th- th- all the stuff that the eggheads like Michael John might say about the First Amendment—that that's actually not where what we've been about. And I, I think that 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 is the philosophical position. The the only other point I would add is because we've been talking about the right is the role of liberals in all this. Because I think that is crucial. That the sort of, you know, what one can call um, the sort of anti-communist tradition is actually like older than communism itself. Like actually, you know, like uh, historians like Michael Rogan have talked about basically conceptualized this idea of an anti-subversive tradition. This tradition of the United States would seize people who are trying to like overthrow the social order as not having rights. And the anti-subversive tradition really goes back to before the Civil War. It is the, you know, how abolitionists were kind of conceived and and, and slaves in revolt, enslaved people who revolt. We're seeing that these are, I mean, if you look at the, the rhetoric of the Confederacy, they they did actually use the word socialism to say, you know, these race mixers who want socialism and equality, they're not real Americans. They don't deserve free speech. And this counter-subversive tradition, and this is a, a crucial point, you know, which, you know, flourished before the Civil War in the attacks on abolitionism, which flourished in the First World War with the, uh, the Red Scare and in the 40s and 50s with McCarthyism, what is maybe wrongly called McCarthyism. This counter-subversive tradition flourishes best, it can really only flourish when it has, is co-opted by liberals. That is, it not only just comes from the right, but has significant support from liberals. And so, like, you know, in the 20th century, it is the liberal president, Woodrow Wilson, who in the course of the, the First World War decides that, you know, like that these anarchists and socialists who are saying we shouldn't be in the war, like, you know, they're troublemakers. I'm going to unleash my attorney general on them. We're going to have the Palmer raids and we're, we're going to deport them all. That was a liberal project. And what is called McCarthyism actually institutionally has its roots in the decision by Harry Truman to make anti-communism the cornerstone of American foreign policy. And this meant unleashing J. Edgar Hoover and HUAC, you know, which existed long before McCarthy ever came out anywhere, enlisting these forces and the loyalty oaths that Harry Truman brought in for the cause of rallying the country, you know, uh, as one of his uh, colleagues said, you know, we have to scare the hell out of the American people in order to get the funding uh, that we need for the for the military. Because, you know, after the Second World War, a lot of Americans just wanted to demobilize. They just wanted, like, let's uh, let's relax. And uh, Harry Truman's foreign policy of NATO, of containment, 
could only work if you mobilize the population, which involved creating liberal anti-communism, which gave all the tools and weapons that the right needed. And in the case of Chandler Davis, to return to this, I mean, it wasn't just HUAC that was the enemy. It was all these colleges, 150 colleges, including the one that he had started off at. And those colleges were manned by liberals. And they, these good liberals were fully participants. They were the uh, willing helpers and accomplices of McCarthyism. So, so, so I mean, just for, for the present moment. So if there is an attack on free speech, it is the liberals who are the weakest link. And if they join in, you know, which under Joe Biden, they might well do in a sort of campaign to demonize pro-migrant voices and pro-Palestinian voices, then we, we are in real trouble. I, I, Gene, that is a fantastic sum, summation, as good as I've ever heard. I, I just want to add one note, which is that, you know, and it's a marginal note, but every time in the course of his, you know, with the, with this problem that, that Chandler Davis came up against a liberal, for instance, I, I think his name was Hatcher, who was the president of the University of Michigan. The, the, the attitude is always this sort of more in sorrow than in anger. You know, there's always this attitude of, oh, I wish I wish so much I could help, but my hands have been tied, you know, by <laughs> by, by, by history, by, by malign bureaucrats, by an unseen, right, that's never really explained. And which kind of in its own kind of gruesome, horrible way comes to pretty much the same argument as your, your man, Kendall. Right. And so in that context, I, I just find it, I guess I'll, I'll just have one last quick, quick thing to say on this, which is that the, I, I, this idea of counter subversion as being fundamental, a kind of ineffable is a, not an ought of American life. It's the way things are. And I just want to push back against that ever so slightly in a sort of soft headed romantic way which I've lately read in command, Vivian Gornick's short biography, Yale University Press, of Emma Goldman, mm-hmm. in which Emma Goldman, who is a sort of quint of it, I mean, I think generally understood by the public, at least I understood it before I'd read the biography, and, and there's lots in the biography that reinforce it, a sort of quintessential American subversive, right? I mean, comes from Russia, you know, devotes herself to organizing at every level uh, a kind of counter-narrative of, Ameri- of the American experience. And yet at the end of her life, when she'd been pitched out of the country, could never come. Well, I guess she was trying to get back in, but she was actually in Toronto when she died. Like Chandler Davis. Like Chandler Davis. And, but with this very kind of extraordinary romantic, died with this feeling that America was really where the great enterprise of, 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 of political life had to take place. Now, you know, there was an element of, in that of just the fact of, you know, some odd million souls who'd never really come to grips under, under quote unquote, a free system of, of expressing themselves. Mm-hmm. But at least they didn't have the horror of the kind of, of feudalism and the, and the European experience weighing them down. Goldman still held this idea that for all of America's faiblesse and failing to come to grips with the, with with you know the great truth of the great collective enterprise, she still felt it was it was the last best hope. So, 
on that. Yeah, on that. yeah no, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, one should say, you know, yeah, I was outlining Kendall's views in the spirit of a devil's advocate to, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. to, to have that. But I mean, yeah, no, the American tradition is not just you know, as he saw it, you know, of, of lynching, <laughs> the American tradition is also of slave revolts, of, you know, union uprising, and all these great subversives who uh, are, you know, have done as much to make the country as as anyone, and who are perhaps, like Chandler Davis himself, you know, eventually apologized to, and more recognized, you know, when they're gone than when they're alive. So, uh, as we're wrapping up, uh, I, I will say, like, to, to you know, finish off my thing about liberals. I I I did want to like. I just recalled the late Phil Oaks, Oaks, the folk singer, who once had a great song called "Love Me, I'm a Liberal," which I want to quote because of what what you said about the all the liberals who were like teary eyed about you know how it, it's too bad you know like I I I, I have to deny, blacklist you, Chandler. You're a good guy. My hands are tied. I I think Phil Oaks in that song summed up there philosophy perfectly now just read the the final verse sure once i was young and impulsive i wore every conceivable pin went to every socialist meetings learned all the old union hymns but i've grown older and wiser that's why i'm turning you in so love me love me love me i'm a liberal and that is the truth, part of the true spirit of the you know, the evil that we're talking about, and that that is the impulse that one has to always fight against. But, but with those words, I, I want to thank Doug for you know like a great conversation that has uh, been immensely enlightening, and and I think resonates with so much that's going on. Well, and thank you, Gina. So, and as always, I, I learned a lot more through the courses.